So let's take a look at this next section, uh, the section titled Zion in, in your Bible there that I just read to you. So each week I've tried to give you uh, one, I've tried to make it one word that describes the heart that is engaged with God based on the Bible. So we've looked at words like, um, we've looked at obedient, we've looked at, uh, you know, hopeful, thirst, not hopeful, that's tonight, uh, thirsting heart, the, the sorrowing heart, all these kinds of words. Tonight we're going to look at the hopeful heart. You can find there in the passage, if you'll look at it, the word hope appears a couple of times. And I want to give you a quiz right out of the gate to make sure you're, you're awake. Uh, what other phrases do you see there that make this idea of hope come to the forefront? What other? It doesn't necessarily say hope, but what does it say that makes you think this is a man who's trying to hope? What do you see? And this is interactive, just in case you're new or haven't been here in a while. So you can say it out loud. Your promise gives me life. Gives me life. Yeah. It's a promise. And in itself, the idea of promise is the idea of hope because it's something that's to come which we'll talk about in a minute. What else? Comfort. comfort, yes. Comfort does imply something bad's happening that I need to be comforted for. Even the phrase, remember your word to your servant, makes me think about the story of Moses. Yeah. Going upon God's not, not pour out all. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Remember your word, don't pour out your wrath, hold your... Hold your wrath and give us mercy instead, which is, you're right, exactly from the story of Moses as well as a few other places. Um, this is clearly a section where David is wrestling with this very common experience, uh, this experience of being uh, tempted to forget the good things that God has told us in Scripture when life doesn't seem to jive with those good things. Right? Uh, and that's where hope comes in. Uh, hope, by definition, is, as we're going to see tonight, it's looking at things that aren't seen with your eyes. They're not present yet, that they're somewhere in the future. Whether they're contained in a promise or they're contained in a, just an idea, they're nevertheless not seen, but yet you're trying to gain some kind of strength from them, even though that, you know, they're, they're not there. That's hope. Uh, David is struggling with all of his might to hang on to that in the face of all different kinds of problems that he's facing, whether it's problems from within himself, which we see a few evidences of, or whether it's problems that he sees without himself, like, for example, in verse 53, where the wicked, or in verse 51, where the insolent are at it again, giving David a fit for being a believer in God. Now, all of us have had the experience of forgetting something very important and dealing with the consequences of it. I want to try to tell you tonight that when it comes to hope, when it comes to going through uh, things that don't seem to match God's word, it is that much more damaging to, to forget what God has told you than anything else you've ever forgotten. And so you need to join David. I need to join in with David here and learn from him how to fight to remember and even to call on God to remember too. Which, of course, I know raises a question, how could God remember, how could he forget? Well, guess what? We're going to talk about that first. So get it out of the way. All right, so look at your Bible. we got four things that we want to look at. And tonight's a little different. I, I just gave them to you in four little statements. 
that I want to talk through. First of all, hope is fixed on the unseen. Second, hope comforts us in affliction. Third, hope motivates us towards holiness, even when it's hard. And then lastly, hope must be fed continually. Y'all ready? First of all, hope is fixed on unseen things. Now let's look at that in verse 49, which has the, the, the thing in it that I think uh, raises, at least to me, a lot of question. Because David turns to God and says, God, remember your word to your servant. How dare David say that, right? What does he mean? Who does David think he is that he's saying to God, God, remember what you told me? That word in which you have made me hope. Why do you think that is? Why would, why would David tell God or ask God to remember something that God had already said? Does God forget? No. Does it seem like God forgets? Okay, yes. <laughs> Got a quick answer on that. Because it does, from the human perspective, seem like God forgets. Does it seem like sometimes God has remembered what he has forgotten? From a human perspective, we know that, of course, you know, God doesn't literally remember things that he literally forgot. But from a human perspective, not only sometimes does it seem like God may have forgotten his word, but sometimes it seems like, oh, he remembered <laughs> And here it comes, that thing that he told me was going to come, and it seemed like it never was. And then, wow, God, you remembered. What's being described there is something I think that's very key to help us understand what we ought to be doing in the midst of our hope when we're waiting on things that are a long time coming that God has told us that would come. The word hope there in verse 49 is what we do. God's word that he gives to his people, the word that's contained in the Bible, is what we ought to put our hope in, meaning we ought to maintain our faith even when we don't see it with our eyes. Uh, we read earlier in uh, Romans chapter 8 that nobody hopes for what he sees, right? Um, you're n you don't go to uh, the ball game you've been looking forward to and then sit down and say, I hope I get to go to the ball game. You're already there. You don't have to hope. hope. Hope is by definition an anticipation of what's not yet. What David is acknowledging is that God's word, at least many things in the Bible, are things that God gives that are strictly matters of hope. Meaning they're not things that we immediately have an experience of or that we immediately possess, but they're things that we should take just as sure as if we did. That is, we should hope in them. Give me some examples. What are some things God says will happen in his word that we don't right now see, and yet we hope in them? Eternity. Eternity. Yeah, so in, in our place, for example, in heaven or with God. Resurrection of the dead, right? Resurrection of body. Every time we bury somebody, we read passages like the trumpet will sound. From 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the trumpet will resound and the dead in Christ will rise. 
And when a pastor stands there and says that, it's not like you see it happen, right? You don't, you know, the, the body doesn't start to raise. It, it is clearly something that's being communicated for hope in the future. What else? Yeah, that's right. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. How about, you will be holy as I am holy. Anybody in here know that one by actual experience right at the moment? No, none of us do, right? All of us are far from it. And yet, God communicates it so that we would hope. Now, here's the thing. On our side, it's, it looks like hope. On God's side, it looks like remembering. The word remember in the Old Testament is used a lot, actually, about God. A lot. And we've already established that clearly it's not because God literally forgets and has to put sticky notes or something and remind himself of things. He doesn't. He knows it all. And yet every time when the, when the Bible uses the word remember with God, it's almost always in connection to his covenanted promises. Covenanted promises, meaning God has not only promised something, but he's gone on record. He's made a covenant to ensure that he will do the thing. Let me give you an example. Noah and the flood. When Noah got out of the boat, God promised what? No more floods. The earth is going to go on forever. Uh, seasons are going to go one after the other in regular order. There's not going to be any more mass flooding to destroy all flesh. And to prove it, I'm going to set my bow in the clouds, my rainbow. And, and that's going to be my sign of the covenant so that, remember what it said, so that when I look at it, I will remember my promise. You ever look down at your wedding ring? What are your thoughts when you look down at it? <laughs> only share them if they're nice thoughts yes only share them if they're nice this is a, this is a nice thought zone right <laughs> at least for now <laughs> when you look down at your wedding ring you ought to remember right some things you ought to remember a story you ought to remember a history you ought to remember commitments made the fact that we forget those commitments is what causes a whole lot of problems a lot of times, right, in, in marriages. Uh, the reason why we exchange rings is that people might remember. Now, it's not, it shouldn't be, literally, that you look down at your ring and are like, oh, yeah, I'm married. Wow, I forgot. I'm, so, I'm really glad she got me this because if she hadn't have got me this, I would never have remembered. Don't you understand? Happy anniversary. Just remind me, just so happened, I saw it. Of course, that's not the, y'all know what we mean. We're talking about a different kind of remembering. What kind of remembering are we talking about? Right here, instead of right here, you know? It's not a, oh yeah, I remember now. It is a, wow, 
I am so committed. I, I take enjoyment and delight reviewing the past history that is represented by that promise and that token of that promise. And now I'm doubling down in my heart on what I did then because I'm reminded of it in the now. And I'm reminded of what it means for my future. And so the Bible actually says God does that. God um, is reminded at all different kinds of times. And sometimes he shares it with us. Sometimes he doesn't share it with us when it happens. But he, he is reminded at all kinds of times in that heart way of the promises he's made to his people. And he is moved into action by his own personal remembrance and recollection of the promises he made and of the history that he has with his people. He calls it to mind. He sees a rainbow in the clouds and he remembers. He does even to this day when God sees a rainbow. That's an old one. When God sees his people, when he sees you, when he sees me, he's reminded of all the things that he's given in his word. And that remembrance is a heart remembrance. He is motivated into action. And so here's, the th here's what I want you to get. Hope on our side means when we can't see the promise of God forthcoming, we have to at least be able to remind ourselves that the God of the promise is a remembering God. That's what David's doing. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. You made me hope in this. I'm hoping in it. But God, I'm reminding myself of your character as a rememberer. When you make a covenant promise, you bring it to mind. You bear it on your heart. And you will act in your own good time. You will act in keeping with the promise you made. That's hope. Sometimes, instead of viewing our circumstances in the light of God, we view God in the light of our circumstances. Do you see the difference? Imagine if David had done that. Verse 49 would sound different, wouldn't it? If instead of viewing his circumstances in light of God, if David did the other way around, he might have said, God, you made me hope in this and you have dashed my hopes. <laughs> you clearly don't care about me. You've forgotten me. You've turned your back on me. He doesn't do that. Because he knows. He knows, he knows that you can't judge God by feeble sense. We can't judge God on the basis of what we perceive or don't see, perceive based on our circumstances. Instead, we've got to judge God based on what he said. Because we know that God remembers that which he says. And God assures us that when he remembers, he remembers in his heart. And he's committed to act in keeping with it. Hope is fixed on the unseen things that God has told us. And it takes those things and it, and it brings them back into our hearts, even as God, we, we trust, is bringing them into his own heart. And secondly, that gives us comfort. If you look at your outline there, this is the second statement. Hope comforts us when we are in our affliction. You can see this in verses 50 through 52, where verse 50 says, This is my comfort. 
And then in verse 52, he concludes by saying, I take comfort, O Lord, in this. So it's a nice little, uh, little envelope there with all the goods inside of it. You know, all of it is about comfort. I take comfort in my affliction in your promise. We've already pointed that out. Robert said a promise gives life, and, and promise is, by definition, a, a hope thing. When you promise someone to do something, you aren't actually doing it. You're just promising to do it. And so it requires that person to have hope in you and to have trust in you. David says, I'm actually able to take your promise, God, and get life from it without waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. I'm getting life just from the promise itself. Why is that? Because I know what kind of God you are. I know you're a God of covenanted promises. Uh, your promises aren't just you're trying to get us off your back. Um, by the way, anybody ever do that? You make a promise maybe to your kids just to get them off your back. We'll go to the beach some other day, you know. And a few weeks later they remind you, you told us you were going to take us to the beach. And you don't want to say, well, I was just saying that so you would stop asking. Right? This is not the way God makes promises. God, when he makes a promise, it's a solemn, I swear to it kind of promise, right? It is a covenant, a bond that he's even willing to seal in his own blood, which he proved at the cross. And so David is, says the promises of God are not just empty. The promises of God actually themselves give me life. E even when insolent people deride me for it, Look at verse 51, uh, which, by the way, what, what kind of deriding do you think they were doing, these insolent folks that David is uh, describing? Can you maybe think of some examples of what that might look like? The insolent deride me utterly. Yeah. Could be, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so he, we know for a fact David had massive uh, divisions within his own home, both before he became king and after. Before it was with Saul, after it was with, well, his own spouses and children. Uh, he had a lot of issues. But it could also be as simple as this Here's this David, man, I've never seen such a holy roller king before. This man is so into God, and yet, look, he doesn't. God's not doing half the stuff David thinks he's doing for him. And poor David, what a pitiful guy, putting all his eggs in that basket. Just that kind of talking down. You know, did you, have you ever experienced that as a believer? Where people will just talk down faith and it just starts to weigh on you when they do? That, that their unbelief can become a discouraging point in your own heart? Because it's just constant, like, you know, negative talking about God and about the Bible and the promises of God. It can just weigh down the heart. David says, look, even when that happens, I don't turn away. Because when I think of your rules from of old, that is, even when I think about promises that are ancient, I take comfort. Because I know that even an ancient promise is a promise presently remembered. By the living God. This is one of the reasons why the Bible is more than just an old book. Right? On, on one hand, it is an old book. 
Actually, more accurately, it's a bunch of old books collected together. So yes, that's true on one hand. But on the other hand, the author is very much alive. So it's not old in that sense. Because that living author who wrote this book and who gave these words is actually in the present moment actively remembering the things he wrote and he still feels the same way he did feel. He still says the same things he did say. He still is committed to do the things he said he was going to do back then now. Which changes the whole game if you think about it when it comes to the Bible. It changes the whole game. You know, you hear people talk about and this is a little bit of a cliche, but read the Bible as if it's God's sort of love letter to you. And that, that can be a little bit of a cliche. People say it all the time, and everybody, I think, says it, but maybe we don't actually know how to do it. Here's one key to doing it. Remembering that the person, that the book that you're reading is, is written by a living person. <laughs> like, think about that. When you sit down to your Bible uh, tomorrow or this week, when you, when you sit down to read it, before you read, think, God, how does it change my interaction with this to know that in this present moment, as I'm reading this, you are actually remembering these words that you spoke? You're remembering them to keep them, to do them, to back them up, to support them, to convince me of them. I think that'll bring a significant amount of, it could bring a significant amount of dynamite into your prayer life and into your Bible reading life. It certainly did for David. He says, no matter what, the promise of God gives me life. I take comfort in my affliction. I will not turn away. I am fighting with all that's within me not to decline from believing the words that you've said. Um, anytime life seems not to be going the way we thought God said it would go, it's very, very tempting to lose faith in what God said. Very tempting. David is modeling what it sounds like to be committed not to doing that. <laughs> what it sounds like to be committed to remembering the remembering God. And to holding his words before our eyes at every step along the way and drawing as best we can with all of our, all of our efforts the comforts that God has given there so long ago, which he is even now wanting to give. Look at it again, verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. I'm tempted to. Certainly people are trying to convince me to, but I won't do it. Because when I think of your rules, even from of old, I take comfort. With God, there is no, no, no such thing as an ancient word. Right? There's no such thing as something that's out of date with God. God does not age. Neither does he change. Not even one bit. Wow. All right, let's look at the next thing. Third thing. Hope is able even to motivate us towards holiness, even when it's hard. All right, let's talk about this for a second. Um, 
when, when things are going poorly or they're difficult in your life, what's, what is typically the last thing on your mind? Well, yeah, yeah, definitely that. Yes, for sure. Definitely. The last thing, of course. Yes, of course. Yes. What else is, this, is like really low on the list? Things are going bad and you're just not thinking about what? That's right. That's what you do think about, right? Is you're thinking about, man, I, I want to I fix this problem. I want to get past this as fast as I can. I want to get to that scenario of life that in my mind is going to be so much more relieving than whatever it is I'm in right now. And if I can just grip my teeth and endure, I'll get there and it'll all be over and I'll be fine. One of the things you're not thinking about, usually, at least not me, I'm not thinking about, is, Lord, how are you making me in this moment the person you want me to be. Maybe you're better than I am, but I have a hard time thinking that way when I'm going through something tough. Almost all my thoughts are about the changing the thing itself. My last thoughts are, Lord, change me. And, oh yes, I'm here to do whatever you ask me to do so that I can change. And yet notice David, verse 53. Because he's a hopeful person, he's got this in him. When it says, hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. I don't know what you think that means, but um, I, don't, I don't think it means, look, I am just really, really ticked at everybody that doesn't love God. I don't, I don't think it means that. Although I do think that might be part of it. Right? He, he might have a holy and righteous anger towards those who have rejected God's law. Uh, I think rather what it means is inside of me there is a hot burning zeal to not fall into the same pattern of behavior that they are in. I don't want to be like that. I want to be different. I want my life to go into a different way. Hot indignation. It's a similar kind of phrase that's used when Jesus turned over the tables in the temple. And the disciples, it says later, remembered how it said in the Psalms, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Remember that? When David turned over the tables, it was because zeal or, or just jealousy, just deep churning desire for the house of God had eaten Jesus up. That's what this phrase means hot indignation a, a burning sense of justice and righteousness seized him because when he looked around he saw a lot of people not listening to God not caring about God and it bothered him but it didn't I really don't think it just bothered him because he thought he was so much greater I think it bothered him because he didn't want to become like that he was committed to wanting to walk a different way through his life. And so therefore he was coming back to the word and he was saying, God, I don't want to forsake your law. I want to keep taking comfort. I don't want to join those who are utterly deriding me. Instead, I want to be with you and I want you to be with me. I want to remember the remembering God. And I want to live my life differently according to your 
word and according to your law. A person of hope, a person of love, a person of commitment. That's what hot indignation, seizing me, means. David looked around and he saw examples of how affliction and even prosperity and all the other circumstances of life, how it, how it had played out in the lives of those who didn't have a heart for God. And he resolved, that can't be me. Build my hope. Remember your word, O Lord. Keep me on the path. And then that leads to our last thing that we see there. Hope must be fed continually. And that's what David does in verses 54 to 56. He's got this hot indignation. And so what does he do? And this is one of the reasons, why, by the way, why I said heart, hot indignation didn't mean he was just really ticked at people. <laughs> because a, a person who's just really ticked at people doesn't do what it says in verses 54 to 56. He turns around then and does. Right? What does it say he did? Verse 54 says he sang. He sang. Your statutes have been my song in the house of my sojourning. Right? You see what I mean? That's not somebody who's just enraged at everybody. This is someone whose rage has led him to singing to the Lord. Wow. It's different. Uh, Verse 55, what does he do? He remembers God's name in the night. He's learning to do the kind of remembering that God does. Again, this is not, verse 55 is not, oh, in the night, oh, I remember, there's a God. Okay, I forgot. No, this is, I'm taking God to heart. In the night, meaning when I'm lying on my bed, when everybody else is asleep, when I don't really have to think about God, but my mind has gone there. Somebody once told me that you can tell a lot about yourself based on what your mind goes to when your mind doesn't have to go to anything in particular. I've always been convicted by that. And I still am today. For David, he remembered the name of the Lord in the night when he couldn't sleep for whatever reason. His mind didn't have to go anything in particular. His mind was probably strongly drawn to all kinds of other negative and anxious and toilsome thoughts. And instead, he remembered his God. Again, this is not somebody who's just ticked at the world. This is somebody whose zeal has driven him to remember and to hope in what God said. And then the last thing, verse 56 This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. See, David has, is is this guy who knows, and, and this comes up over and over again in Psalm 119, he knows one of the secrets to understanding the Bible is trying to live the Bible. Right? Uh, In fact, there might be person A who has tremendous head knowledge of the Bible, but they don't try to live it. Um, Usually their head knowledge will end up being very twisted. It'll be a lot of it, 
and it'll be sometimes, in some ways impressive, but it'll be twisted because they're not actually trying to do anything with the Lord, right? They're not trying to walk before him. Person B may have very little like intellectual head knowledge. They may not have the education that person A has. But because they are in simple faith, taking God at his word and believe that God's remembering God and they're trying to walk it out, they could have wisdom that puts the guy A to shame. It's the way that works, right? D- David knew that. And, you know, David, as far as I know, didn't go to seminary, right? Although he had probably the equivalent of 20 times greater than seminary because he had the Holy Spirit as his professor, which that's pretty remarkable. But because David tried to walk it, because he actually remembered it here and not just here, he had a kind of experience with God that you just can't teach in school, nor really in church. You just have to, you have to experience it to have it. And that's what David means in verse 56. I have a blessing that people just don't even know anything about because I have simply tried to put one foot in front of the other in obedience to God day after day. And I found you, God, sometimes to be confusing. Sometimes I've found you to be mysterious. I feel like sometimes you're forgetting me. But I have always found you to be a rememberer. And you can't ever out-remember God. Uh, I, I remember you in the night, and I work hard to remember you, David says. But you know, you're remembering me more than I'm remembering you, and I know it because you're showing up in my life in ways that I might not even know how to put into words. And yet, God, you are there working in me. That's what hope looks like. You know, our church is called Greater Hope, right? It's a theme that I like. I think it's important. I think it's one of the things that we don't talk about as much as we should. Because, I don't know, 100% of the Christian life is lived on earth. Y'all got that? That's a pretty good statistic for you. 100% of the Christian life is lived on earth. That is, 0% is actually lived in heaven. When you get to heaven, it's a whole different life, right? <laughs> it's a new life. It's an eternal life. What we're doing right now is all on earth, which means you need buckets of hope. Uh, you need that ability of faith to hang on to things you don't see yet. Or else, yeah, we're lost. And so I find the theme hope coming up again and again and again in Scripture. And I'll remind you again of verse 49 as we close. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. Amen. The remembrance of God is the foundation of our hope. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for uh, these words uh, probably written 3,000 years ago. And yet, Lord, with you there are no ancient words. There are no dusty and worn out ideas. If it was spoken by you, it is spoken. And it comes to us as a living and abiding expression of your character and will. And so, God, I pray that we would relate to you lovingly, that we would relate to you trustingly, and, Lord, most of all, that we would relate to you with hope. 
clinging to the promises of those things that we do not yet see. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. All right. Let's conclude our time together by singing uh, this uh, hymn of hope. It's called How Firm a Foundation. It's found on uh, number 94 in the hymnal. That first line, how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. Uh, What more can he tell you? What more can he tell you than he's told you? He's laid a foundation in your faith that you can cling to forever. Let's stand as we sing, how firm a foundation.